All right. Good morning, everyone. It's so great to see you all here. As Pastor John mentioned earlier, today we have a full house, and it's our first time meeting here to do our in-person Easter service since 2019. Uh, So uh, it's great to see you all. Great to see some old friends as well as uh, some newcomers. Uh, Welcome, and uh, hope you have a wonderful time of worship and Uh, just meeting people, maybe even making new friends uh, with us today. Uh, If you've been with us for a while, then you may remember me sharing in previous sermons about how much our family enjoys watching Disney Pixar movies. Any Pixar fans here? Okay, not that many. Okay, well, you're too embarrassed to raise your hands. I I understand. Um, We love Pixar movies. The animation, the effects are always always top-notch. They have such memorable characters, and the stories, the stories are really where it's at. So creative and captivating. And they always have that one moment. These movies always have that one movement, that uh, moment that tugs at your heartstrings. You're trying to hold back the tears and not surrender your sense of masculinity or whatnot. Um, Our staff was recently talking about our favorite Pixar movies during one of our recent meetings, and So I was thinking about this, and if I had to choose my absolute favorite, I think it would still be the movie Ratatouille. Uh, Came out a while ago, but it it was tough. I also love movies like Monsters, Inc., the first one. Um, And remember those final moments of Toy Story 3? Oh, man. Um, I also recently watched the movie Inside Out again. This movie is brilliant. If you haven't seen it, talk about a great movie that shows how important it is to honor all of the different emotions that we're feeling, even the so-called negative ones. But another film on my short list of Pixar favorites has to be the movie Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo. I remember watching this movie in the theaters for the first time with my mom, of all people. I'm not sure how that happened, but I remember my mom was there, and I also remember... The whole time we were watching, I was just so stressed out. Like, this movie was so stressful for me to watch. I think most of us have seen it. It's basically about these fish who are trying to escape a fish tank in a dentist's office in Sydney, Australia. Anyone remember P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney? (laughs) One of the fish, the main character is Nemo, and he desperately wants to be reunited with his dad. But all of the other fish want to get out, too. Now, I'm about to give away the ending here, so if you haven't seen this movie yet, well, it's your fault. (laughs) Seriously, where have you been? This movie came out in 2003, like this was during George Bush's first presidential term. And there's even a sequel now called Finding Dory, so you've had plenty of time. So here's the ending of Finding Nemo. All the fish escape. They all live. Nemo finds his dad, the dad finds Nemo, and they all live happily ever after. Amen. But at the very end of this movie, there is a scene where all the other fish have just crossed a busy street in downtown Disney. They're filled in plastic bags with water, and they land in the ocean on the other side, and they start celebrating. Yay, we made it. And then when they're finished celebrating, one of them, voiced by Brad Garrett, asks the very important question, well, now what? 
They struggled the whole movie to find their freedom, and their efforts finally paid off with the, well, rather minor complication of the plastic bags. They're stuck in there. But now what? Now what? You know, we shouldn't underestimate how important that two-word question can be. In fact, it's often the first question that comes to mind when you hear some news, even great news, like, you got an A on your test, or she said yes when you asked her to prom. Well, now what? Well, the answer would probably be something like, well, let's celebrate, or something like that. But what if the good news that you hear is also potentially life-changing good news? I got accepted into that college. He proposed to me. It's a girl. We're under contract. Well, now what? Let's celebrate? Well, yes. But that can't be your only response because your life is about to change. You've got to figure out what you're going to do. If the news is big enough to affect your life in a, in a significant way, well, then you've got to come up with a plan. Well, I, I mention this because the Christian faith is based on the belief that the story of Easter is the most important life-changing news in the history of the world. That is not an exaggeration. The Christian faith is based on the belief that the story of Easter is the most important life-changing news in the history of the world. The creed that we recited earlier this morning says that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Some of us even said it with feeling this morning. That is momentous news. But the question is, well, now what? Should I even care? How should this news about something that happened over 2,000 years ago affect us even today? If this news is as significant as Christianity claims, well, then how should we respond? What I'd like to do this morning is take a quick look at three people in the Bible, three snapshot portraits, if you will, of how each of these people responded to this amazing news about Jesus rising from the dead. And my hope is that as we peek into their stories a little bit, we'll hear God's gentle voice inviting us to respond to this Easter story in the same way that they did. In short, yes, we should care, and yes, there are good answers to this all-important question of, well, now what? The first person I want to consider this morning is a man named Thomas. We find Thomas' story in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Let me read a few verses for us. In John, chapter 20, verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, who's also known as Didymus, was one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
So who is this Thomas? Well, Thomas belonged to a group of men who were known as Jesus' most loyal followers during his ministry. Thomas was one of his disciples. And like the other 10 disciples who were living at the time, Thomas was devastated by the news of their leader's death by crucifixion. But then word starts going around about Jesus somehow coming back to life on the third day. And Thomas hears this news, but he refuses to believe it. And, you know, Thomas, to be fair to him, gets often a bad rep for this. In fact, among some Christian circles, he's known as Doubting Thomas. I think that's a little harsh. Our story actually tells us why Thomas had a hard time believing that Jesus had risen from the dead. Apparently, the other ten disciples had seen Jesus with their own eyes earlier, but for some reason, Thomas wasn't there with them. So, his reaction, I think, is actually perfectly understandable. I think any of the other ten men, or any of us for that matter, would have responded in exactly the same way that Thomas did. He hadn't seen it with his own eyes, so he had a hard time believing this news that Jesus had risen. Well, a week goes by, and Jesus appears a second time, and this time Thomas is there, and when he sees Jesus' hands and his side still bearing the marks of the nails from his crucifixion, Thomas's doubt instantly gives way to faith. And then Jesus replies by promising that many more people will believe like Thomas does here, but unlike Thomas, these future believers will have faith even though they don't see Jesus with their eyes or touch him with their hands. But their faith will not be in any way inferior. In fact, I would even say many of these believers that Jesus foresaw in our story are sitting in this room right now. You're among this group of people that Jesus was talking about. On the one hand, we have to acknowledge this Easter story is extraordinary. We just don't typically hear about dead people coming back to life. It is not compatible with the modern scientific worldview. Science, almost by definition, excludes any possibility of the supernatural. And yet, on the other hand, we need to understand also, if it's hard for us to believe today that dead people can come back to life, it was actually even harder in the first century Greco-Roman world. Many people in those days believed in some kind of afterlife of some sort. But there wasn't any ancient philosophy back in those days that allowed for the possibility of a single individual physically coming back to life after he or she had died. That just did not happen. In his book called Surprised by Hope, a scholar and theologian named N.T. Wright notes, insofar as I understand scientific method, when something turns up that doesn't fit the paradigm you're working with, one option at least, perhaps when all others have failed, is to change the paradigm. Not to exclude everything you've known to that point, but to include it within a larger whole. I think that's exactly what happened to this group of blue-collar folks in first century Palestine when they started seeing with their own eyes this risen Jesus over several occasions. It's what happened to Thomas in our story. And I think that's one of the challenges and the invitations of our Easter story today. There are many people who dismiss the resurrection of Jesus altogether because it's just scientifically impossible. 
But I think Thomas' story here in John chapter 20 is a gentle but firm invitation to believe. And by believe, I don't mean just that in the sense of, yes, I agree that happened. Rather, as Thomas said, Jesus, if you really did rise from the dead, then I submit my life before you as my Lord and my God. My friends, the message of Easter is that Christ is risen. (laughs) Well, so now what? Well, I believe Thomas would say, so believe it. Believe it. The risen Jesus invites us to believe. He invites us to have faith. This is the first response. Next person I want to look at is Paul. Paul. Unlike Thomas, Paul was not a member of Jesus' original innermost group of followers. Paul came to the party a bit late. He was born and raised as a devout Jew, and at some point he was startled to hear about a growing movement among some fellow Jews who were saying that a man named Jesus had risen from the dead and was therefore the Son of God. That kind of claim wasn't just crazy for a strict monotheist like Paul. It was actually blasphemous, and so Paul made it his personal mission to destroy this new movement by finding as many believers as he could and throwing them all in jail. But then one day, as Paul was traveling on a road, he encountered the risen Jesus himself in a miraculous vision, and that experience was so overwhelming that it literally knocked him to the ground. He's on the ground. But that experience also changed Paul's life forever. In an instant, he went from being one of Christianity's most passionate opponents to one of its most influential spokesmen. And everywhere Paul went, he shared this message about Jesus' resurrection. Not only what happened, but why it matters and what it means for the world. We read this passage in our call to worship this morning from 1 Corinthians, where Paul wrote, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. To put it simply, when Jesus rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday morning, he demonstrated his power over death. And that, my friends, is tremendous news because you and I both know death is a powerful enemy. Death is a powerful enemy. Death always seems to have the final word because everybody dies at some point. It doesn't matter whether you're a relatively good person or a relatively bad person or somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And it doesn't matter how rich you are or how educated you are or how successful you are. There is no amount of wealth or knowledge or achievement that gives any human being the ability to escape death. The grim truth is everybody dies at some point. But that first Easter morning, that was a game changer. When Jesus rose again, he showed that death could not hold him down. And what Paul teaches here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that everyone who belongs to Jesus has victory over death as well. 
In other words, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just an isolated incident on one particular Sunday morning in the first century. The resurrection is the future hope for all Christians. Author and pastor Tim Keller puts it this way, Jesus' death means no death for us. His resurrection means our resurrection. And to all my fellow believers here, we know this isn't just mere wishful thinking. This is a reality that's waiting to be realized. This is our hope that gives us strength as we struggle through life's hardships here and now. This is our hope even when we watch our loved ones get sick or even die. We know as much as we grieve, if these friends, if these family members were believers, then death is not the end of the story for them. Which is why Paul writes elsewhere, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The message of Easter is that Christ has risen. <laughs> so now what? Well, I believe Paul would say, so have hope. Because our resurrection is coming too if we're in Christ. Death will not have the final word anymore. Jesus' resurrection also means our resurrection for us who believe. The risen Jesus invites us not only to have faith, but also to have hope. Hope is a second response. Well, we've looked at Thomas, we've looked at Paul. The third and last person I want to consider this morning is Peter. Peter. If Thomas belonged to the group of Jesus' innermost and closest followers, well, then Peter was that group's leader. Peter, many of us know, often spoke up while the others stayed quiet. That was a great personality trait, but it also got him into trouble more than once. In fact, his worst moment happened as Jesus was standing trial after he was arrested. Peter had just promised Jesus just a couple hours earlier that he would never deny him, even if all the other disciples did. But then Jesus gets arrested, and people start asking Peter if he knew Jesus, and what happens? Well, he denies it. Not just once, not just twice, but three separate times. In other words, Peter could talk a big game, but he crumbled under pressure, and that left him deeply ashamed. So ashamed, in fact, that when he heard the rumors that Jesus had risen, Peter didn't quite know what to do. And so he chose the safe route. He went back to his former job. He decided to go fishing. But Jesus, being the kind and gracious master that he is, decides to meet Peter where he's at. And so he goes to the shore by Peter's fishing boat. He calls out to him and he invites Peter to have a meal together. We pick up in John chapter 21. It says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. If we keep reading on, we'll see Jesus asks the exact same question two more times. So three times total. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Once for each time, Peter had denied him. And each time, as Peter hears that question, do you love me? He answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And then each time, Jesus gives the same reply, feed my sheep. What's happening here? Well, Jesus is restoring Peter. That's what's happening. Yes, Peter may have failed miserably, but his encounter with the resurrected Christ gave him the opportunity to reaffirm his love for his Lord. And it also gave Peter the opportunity to be recommissioned for ministry, to feed Jesus' lambs. And those two things often go together. Loving Jesus also means loving his people. And loving God's people would ultimately cost Peter his life. But later on in the same chapter, Jesus says to Peter, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger and dressed yourself and went where you wanted, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. According to church tradition, Peter would also die by crucifixion, just like Jesus. But unlike Jesus, Peter asked to be crucified upside down. He apparently didn't consider himself worthy to die in the same way that his master did. And I believe the Easter story invites us to show this kind of radical, sacrificial love for our Lord and for his people. I've mentioned this a few times, but in this powerful little book called The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn uses the analogy of a dot and a line to describe the Christian life. The dot, as you can see, has a distinct starting point and ending point. And it's small, it's brief. The dot represents our life on earth. But from that dot, there is a line that goes out and goes on forever. It does not end. And that line represents our life for eternity. Not only when our souls are in heaven after we die, but even when our souls are eventually reunited to our new resurrection bodies when Jesus returns. And Randy Alcorn notes that right now we're living in the dot. We're living in the dot, but the important question is, what are we living for? Most people, including many Christians, unfortunately, are living for the dot, which is quite short-sighted. But if you and I truly believe that this isn't the only life or this isn't the only body that we'll have, if we know that one day we'll receive a new body to enjoy in God's new creation for all of eternity, then we won't live for the dot. We'll live for the line. We won't live for the things that we're going to leave behind once we die. We're going to live for what lasts forever. God, God's kingdom, and God's people. The message of Easter is that Christ has risen. So now what? Well, I believe Peter would say, Randy Alcorn is right. Don't live for the dot. Live for the line. Because living for the line will free you to love Jesus and love his people with no regrets. The risen Jesus invites us to love. Love is the third response. So we have these three portraits. We have these three invitations from 
the Easter story. The risen Jesus invites us to have faith. The story of Thomas invites us to have hope. The story of Paul invites us to love. The story of Peter. But as Paul famously wrote somewhere else, the greatest of these three, faith, hope, and love, is love. Because one day Jesus is going to come back and all who have trusted in him will receive our new resurrection bodies and we will enjoy God's new creation where there will be no more death and there will be no more pain or mourning or crying. As hard as it may seem for us to imagine, there's going to come a time when faith and hope will no longer be necessary because our faith will finally become sight and our hope will finally and fully be realized. But love will continue. We will keep on loving our Savior who gave himself for us and we will keep on loving his people for all of eternity. Amen. Amen.